0: The Marching Roundtable is proud to be an official media partner of Drum Corps International and Music for All.
1: The system was part of it, but as a teacher you learn that you can't just keep telling people they're wrong. uh, Just because uh, people don't perform if they're worried about making mistakes, people perform. So that was the first thing is I learned that, uh, you know what, it isn't just all mistakes.
2: That's Gene Montarastelli, renowned visual judge and instructor who's worked with many, many different drum corps in Drum Corps International at some time. On this podcast, he looks back at his early years as a DCI instructor to share three things he wished he had known when he started teaching. This podcast conversation is sponsored by Fred J. Miller Incorporated, found at fjminc.com slash roundtable. And members can see the video version of this podcast at marchingartseducation.com. Gene Montrestelli on three things he wish he had known when he started teaching, on the Marching Roundtable.
0: This podcast is sponsored by FJM, Fred J. Miller Incorporated. FJM is the leader in marching arts uniform manufacturing and continues to lead the charge through groundbreaking design, superior service, and over 60 years of industry innovation. The Cesario collection of marching band uniforms is 100% machine washable, includes a limited lifetime warranty, and makes the fitting process a breeze with their Adjust-A-Cuff and Adjust-A-Hem technology. Now is the perfect time to create a new image for your program. Chat with a live FJM representative or schedule your complimentary consultation today at FJMinc.com slash roundtable. That's FJMinc.com slash roundtable. Fred J. Miller Incorporated, family owned and operated since 1960.
2: Hey there, everyone. Barry Hauser from the University of Illinois and Smith-Walbridge Clinics. I wanted you to know that I am a huge fan of the work that Tim Hinton and his team are doing at Marching Arts Education. I recently joined him for a webinar and that webinar along with so many others and a tremendous amount of other resources are located on his website. Now if you're like me, you are constantly looking for best practices, techniques, and just want to know what others are doing in our activity. I know this information will be super helpful to you and your staff. I encourage you to consider a membership to help support Tim so we can continue providing this amazing information and other resources to our marching community. Thanks so much, and be sure to join today. Hey everybody, it's Tim Hinton, the Beast of the Marching Arts. We are talking about three things I wish I would known when I started teaching, and boy, do I have a ringer today. Gene Monterostelli's here. Gene, how are you?
1: Oh, it's a wonderful day in Casper, Wyoming.
2: Ah, oh, wonderful. I'm so glad that you, you've you stopped everything to talk with me today. Um, I, the idea is simply to to look back <clears throat> at when you first started doing this kind of work, and what were things that kind of now your older self, you'd like to look back and say, I wish I had known a few things. And of course, there's probably a list of about 100 things that we could all come up with. But I've asked you to cull it down to three. Now, anybody listening, in case... Well, everybody knows who you are, Gene. You're really famous, especially in the whole world of drum corps. But I want to remind everybody, he gave me some information. This is interesting. He started in drum corps in 1958, um, the Marquette Crusaders in Ottawa, Illinois. You first started teaching in 1963, five years later, and then you became a, an adjudicator in Central States Judge Association in 1966, and, he, and you did that all the way through 2016. In the middle of that time, you also were a DCI visual judge. Everybody knows you from your role there. is is a renowned visual judge. Um, and in the middle of all this, you had a, a long stint with the Troopers, and you've also worked with lots of drum corps, like Santa Clara, Blue Devils, Troopers, VK, Suncoast Sound, Phantom Regiment, Blue Coats, Pacific Crest, Boston Mandarins, Oregon Crusaders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So everybody, this is a man that has a great history. I mean, of course, now you're doing the drum major leadership program. All of this is great stuff. You're sort of a legend in the world of instruction and judging, in the world of drum corps. How, how does it feel to be like? Do you you know that, right? Everybody knows who you are, Gene.
1: Well, I guess I. One thing I can say, I've survived. <laughs> Okay, well, that's valuable right there. Yeah, and uh, that's a positive. Uh, My son calls and says, "What's up?" and I'll say, "My age and my weight," and one of those two is a positive.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited that you're. And I thought, okay, I wanted to talk to a variety of people, and I was so excited that you agreed to talk with me about this because of this perspective of all of these years in drum corps. Actually, sometimes, Gene, we just need to talk about how you've been able to to stay excited and involved in drum corps over all these years, because a lot of people sort of burn out and off they go. So that's another whole another conversation. But for today, three things you wish you'd know when you started. What
1: what do you have first off for us? Well, first of all, I came into drum corps when there was a hundred point system and 90 points of that were ticks. In other words, mistakes. So, and uh, when I came into drum corps, unlike now, Almost everyone who taught in drum corps had been in drum corps and we did not have a lot of teachers, we just had people who had been in drum corps and they grew up under the TIC system and I did also. So everything from a practice standpoint was geared around getting rid of mistakes, so you know we focused on that. Uh, And that's just kind of the thing there and obviously over time we learned that that isn't everything. And the system was part of it. But as a teacher, you learn that you can't just keep telling people they're wrong uh, just because uh, people don't perform if they're worried about making mistakes. People perform. So that was the first thing is I learned that, uh, you know what, it isn't just all mistakes.
2: Yeah, That's really interesting. Of course, we switched to the buildup system in the early 80s, and it became more about what are you bringing to the table as opposed to, how are you making mistakes and we're getting those ticks that really changed. I think the activities or or should have, or started to change the activities relationship with judges, the judge became your ally as opposed to sort of your enemy.
1: Well, I I don't even know if it was enemy and certainly as a teacher. And the one advantage of that system was, in fact, we knew specifically what they were dealing with right. and what the score was all about. Yeah, that's true. Uh, even now, as instructors, we do, in fact, deal with mistakes. But back then, the focus was entirely on uh, getting rid of mistakes.
2: Yeah, and I, I regret using the word enemy because I don't think that's the case. But there was a little bit of an adversarial relationship where you, know, you felt like the judge was taking things away from you. Now the judge is giving you things, you know, like giving you credit for all the things that you're doing. So I like that much better. So if you're looking back to that, to, to early Gene out there teaching, um, would you, would you talk about, um, would you tell that Gene, you know, say more positive comments, um, well, build
1: students up? Yeah. Two things to that. One, in fact, I remember, well, I remember the person's name. His name was Anthony Scatella. He was with Boston and when I was working with them, um, knowing things about how to teach, I came over and just told him he did some things right. And later on after practice, he came up to me and said, you know, you're the first person that's talked to me in two years on the field. Because again, even then, and that's much later uh, on the field for visual, we're still trying to fix mistakes all the time instead of talking to people about what they were doing right. And since he was very good at what he did, nobody ever talked to him. And that's his comment. I was the first person who had talked to him in two years on the field. Wow. Because he didn't make mistakes.
2: That's amazing. Um,
1: and you know what? That's that's fascinating
2: because you hear these stories of people um, feeling like they're not getting enough attention. Sometimes that's a compliment because there are other fires and you're not yeah. one of them, right? <laughs> but,
1: but the other thing is, is it really and truly is important. And uh, that's why we do it. We've got to tell them in fact, that they're right. In fact, that's the second thing I think I learned over time. When you're working on the field, uh, I always made a point when somebody did something right. I said it loud enough so the people around them knew that I had recognized they had done things right. And when I was working with something with somebody who had a problem, I tried to make that conversation between me and him or me and her. So uh, make the positives for the world and the negatives or the problems that's between you and the student. So that was the second thing over time I learned you're a lot more effective that way. So the first thing, it isn't just mistakes, so it's important to get to positives. And then the second thing is, is play up the positives and the negatives or the problems that's between you and the individual student. I love that you mentioned that because I think it's very powerful
2: to use someone as an example, right? Like I, I, my friend, Dr. Mary White is wonderful at this. She'll be standing in front of a color guard and she'll be like, did everybody see how Susie just did that? Like that was amazing. The way that she did her flag, whatever. And then Susie's being built up and excited and everybody's like, well, I want to look as good as Susie. Like it's it's contagious when you're giving someone compliments. Um, so I love that you're doing that out loud, but then not saying the negatives out loud as well. I like that a lot.
1: Mm -hmm. And then uh, the third thing, and this is something just more of a philosophical thing and an approach to practice, and it may or may not happen within the group. But the third thing is, is a, you know, there's a training practice and there's performance practice. Uh, The days that you do not perform, or the part of the day you're not performing, you're getting more involved with problems, you're solving problems, that's positive and negative. When it gets down to that last uh, practice before a performance, uh, psychologically, you want them geared to performing. So anything that I would ever do uh, that last practice before a performance was, Uh, always play up the positive. You're talking to them about positive things. The only time I would ever deal with a problem is if it was a major problem. If it was an individual mistake, such as life, it was a mistake. But the only time you deal with problems uh, when you're getting ready for a performance is something that has to be fixed right now. But everything is geared around what they are doing right. Because when you're performing, if you go out and perform that's one mindset. But if you go out trying not to make make mistakes, you know what you if you're high jumping, you may get over six foot but you're worried about things you won't get to six foot six or whatever the number is. The point of it is is you want them free uh, mentally and emotionally to perform performing is fun. And if you're going out having fun, you know, we've had training through the last week. Now just go perform because there's not a lot of training here to get in the last hour. So, you want to get them mentally and uh, emotionally ready to perform.
2: Yeah. You want them to have that confidence and to feel really good and like they're ready. Right. And they're not going to feel that way if you're correcting things Keeping up to the down. last minute. Yeah, that makes sense. Keep,
1: yeah. Yeah. You keep correcting them. You did this, you did that. So, it's
2: great. You've been a part of the activity your whole life for such a long time.
1: What is it yeah, about decades? Why? I think it's well, I was in drum corps in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 1000s, the 10s, the 20s. That's eight decades. Amazing. That's- and I'm only 78. But basically, yeah, I don't know how you did yeah, that. 60, yeah, <laughs> that's 60 years of fulls and two decades on either side of partials.
2: That's really, really cool. Why,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. Why is it lasted? You know what? Yeah. At point one, it's fun. You know, the other thing is, is I've got a lot of friends involved uh, to uh, certainly the last 20 years uh, when I stopped judging. Uh, well, this quick story. All right. I a couple of times I took sabbaticals and in, in the mid 80s. I took two years off from judging and just spent three days here, four days there and all that kind of stuff. And uh uh, you know, because I thought, uh, you know, I'd been strictly judging from the uh, the mid-70s to the mid-80s and it was time to go back, just like you take a sabbatical from teaching. Or from teaching, you go out into the real world and do something before you go back in the classroom, you learn something. Well, it's the same thing as a judge. It had been 10 years since I had taught. And the reason I got into judging originally is it was going to make me a better teacher. All right. Well, now I've been judging. And the reasoning I went to back to uh, a couple years of teaching, it was going to make me a better judge. So then I, I did it. And then another 15 years. And then uh, in 99 and 2000, it was time to do that again. And so then I worked strictly with one core. I worked with Southman for two years. That's when they came back from their sabbatical, their sabbatical, and I had a couple of them over the years and a good friend of mine, Pat Sadling was director. So I worked with one core strictly. And that was Southwind. Then I came back and judged the year. Well, over time, uh, back then, judges didn't stick around forever. Now we got judges that literally stick around for a long time. Uh, and I got back and basically at that point, well, back then we judged longer periods of time. Now judges go out for three or four days. And they can have everyone back then we had fewer judges and more contests, we would go out a week 10 days at a time. Well, it may seem glamorous, but when you've got a week stretch where you're uh, two days in Iowa, two days in Illinois, and then you fly to Mississippi for three days or whatever. And all you're doing literally is traveling during the day, judge at night, get up early the next morning, travel again. And plus, the other thing, most of my generation had moved on. So, uh, judging really isn't all that glamorous and fun if you're away from home for a week to 10 days and all you're doing is judging for two or three hours a day.
2: Yeah,
1: it's very grueling. So, then, and I enjoyed that two years with Southwind. So, then I went back to teaching. And the first Corps I was with after that was with the Fan Regiment. But, and then I found that uh, doing that, uh, you know, two years was enough. At that point, I think they were tired of listening to me and it was good. And I, so over the next almost 20 years, I eight or nine different courses, And uh, I even learned a lot more, quite frankly. In fact, I think I learned more about judging and teaching in the 20 years I didn't judge and just taught than I probably did the first 40 or whatever it was, just because of, uh, you know, you, a lot of different aspects to it. Plus, quite frankly, teaching is fun. And if you're, you, you know, you spend a week or two in spring training, you're teaching all day. So oh, you yeah. are doing something you enjoy doing all day. Oh yeah. And then the thing with the drum majors that came up a number of years ago, and what I found there is is, and you know, and you're teaching too. The drum majors in a unique situation where. They're not staff, but they have responsibilities of staff. And they don't have the fun of being performers all the time because they have responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And some of the association they can't have as a drum major because, in fact, they are in charge. And uh, they have a lot of responsibilities. And depending on the course, sometimes it's way too many. But in any event, so uh, what I tried to do with the drum major is the first thing is we established a community, a community of drum majors and they got to know each other better. So if nothing else, they had some peers that they could talk to and, you know, they're thrown together a lot of times anyway, but this way it even made it better. They got to, they had people that had the same problems in the same situations they had. Right. That's great. And, uh, so that, uh, that and that's one of the things we do. Well, now we have an annual meeting in January when the chorus get together, the drum majors get together. I also believe that I think the chorus now get together, get along better uh, because of the fact that the drum majors are all friends and so they've worked out and if there are problems, it's easier to work out problems when you've got friends you know, in the other group of buses.
2: That is a great, great point, Gene. And I think that can't be overstated. I think that has really created a lot of goodwill and camaraderie amongst groups.
1: And, uh, interestingly enough from the drum major seminar we have every year in January, a couple of years ago, we actually had a wedding, uh, uh, Claire Albrecht and Samuel Crawford, they met each other at the drum major seminar.
2: Cool. That's great. And you
1: know, Claire was with cadets and Sammy with blue coats. And of course you've dealt with them all the time.
2: Yeah, they're wonderful. So, awesome. That's great.
1: so that was probably the first thing, you know, we have weddings and drum corps all the time because of course you're together. But this is the first one we actually had um, through the seminar, these two met. and You know, they got married just a few years ago.
2: That's awesome. That's very cool. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I, I love it. And I, I love what you had to say and it's, it's all very practical and very smart, and I can see, uh, I'm glad that you are able to share that. I think it will benefit for sure. Watch for more conversations like this one from successful educators in the marching arts and music education. Find similar inspiring topics like this in the over 1,100 podcasts at the Marching Roundtable, or in the hours and hours of webinar videos and interviews at marchingartseducation.com. We are so grateful that so many of the very top educators and designers in our activity have talked with us and shared their secrets freely. You can learn from these top marching arts professionals at any time and our website at marchingartseducation.com. Thanks again to the sponsor of this podcast, Fred J. Miller Incorporated, found at fjminc.com slash roundtable. This is Tim Hinton, the Beast of the Marching Arts. You can find out more about me at beastofthemarchingarts.com. And check out our new bed and breakfast at phantomhistoryhouse.com.
0: If you're a business that works with band directors, marching bands, color guards, or drum lines, you should sponsor podcasts at the Marching Roundtable. Our listeners are the exact audience you're trying to reach. And with thousands of podcast downloads each month, it's a great way to directly reach your target audience. For more information, click on the sponsorship opportunities link at marchingroundtable.com or email Tim at Tim at marchingroundtable.com. You can grow your business and help support what we're doing here on the podcast.